Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, first I want to go to uh, Romans chapter 12. The Lord's been dealing with me pretty much all week about worship. And we tend to, and again, I think it's because not necessarily that we're an American church, but we do tend to be a modern, well, we don't tend to be, we are a very modern church. And we have, we've narrowed the definition of worship down to listening to praise music. And, 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 and I say that purposely because for some people it is listening to praise music rather than participating in praise music. And I'm not denigrating music. I, um, I have, in fact, I had to go through on my phone. I, when I bought this, I got um, um, 32 gig of memory thinking, Lord, I'll never be able to fill that thing up. And I had to go and delete primarily pictures, but most of what I had to delete was music because I had so much music on this phone that I was out of memory. And I just decided to, I had a bunch of sermons on there that I've listened to once. I'll probably never listen to them again. I went and deleted a bunch of stuff. But I looked at the music I have on there. And I have certain songs that, and certain, um, um, you call them CDs, although I've never had the CD. It's always been electronic. But I have certain CDs that I just listen to them over and over and over again. If I'm doing something, I have that on and, and it's, I get into it. It blesses me. So I'm not denigrating that. What I'm saying is our worship is much broader than that. And Paul says that from the New King James, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. If you, you go and, and look at that, the words there, the, the Greek word reasonable is logikos, which is translated from logos. And here, when it says reasonable, what it's saying, it's, it's in the sense that of looking at the, the order of words. You know, you can have words, you can, trans, you can throw a lot of words out, but if you don't have a logical sequence to your words and you don't have your words logically and properly sequenced, your sentences make no sense. It's one of the problems, you know, living with a Spanish teacher, you, you figure out pretty quick that when, um, when you try to translate from one language to the other, the word order is never the same. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really love about the Spanish language is when, when you have punctuation, especially question marks. When, when a sentence is going to be a question, they put the question mark at the start of the sentence. You don't have to wait to the end to figure out they're asking a question. And I'm thinking that ought to just be, that's common sense. Let's put the question mark at the front of the sentence and then I know this, the sentence I'm going to read is a question, not a statement. Well, that's what Paul's using this word for reasonable. He's saying that this is, this is logical, this is reasonable, this is not something mysterious that is really hard to explain. He's talking just plain logic. But also the word there for, the, the Greek word there for service is uh, latria, which when you trace it back, it originally dealt with service and work in the tabernacle. It's talking about, in fact, Barclay um, translate this in his translation, William Barclay's translation, he translates that last phrase as your reasonable service of worship. And when and we're going to go back and look at the tabernacle a little little bit today, but this the root word there, it's used, I just it's used several places, but I just picked out two. It's used in Matthew 4 verse 10, 
where Jesus said, when he was talking to Satan during the temptations, he said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. That's the same word there as is in the end of Romans 12.1. Jesus equates service and worship as, the, as equals or at least similar. In Philippians 3.3, 3, Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. It is directly translated into worship there. Worship is a reasonable, logical thing that we do. If you read verse 2 of Romans 12, he tells us one of the ways that we worship is do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul is saying, this is what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to be a living sacrifice. He's taken us back and, and looking at the temple and the tabernacle service of worship. Now, a, 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 a sacrifice in those days, you had to tie it down. It's going to die. It doesn't want to die. So if you don't tie it down, it will run away. In fact, once you've done, if you've done a whole series of sacrifices, they know what's coming. They can smell the blood, and you're going to have to drag them to it. Paul is saying we don't need to be that kind of sacrifice. We need to willingly crawl up on that altar and kill our old life, how we used to live, but be alive because... You go back in Romans, and I don't have time to go there, but, but G Paul makes the analogy of husband and wife. And he says, this is us. We are married to our flesh. I'm not born again yet. I'm, an, I'm my old man. I'm married. I am wed. I'm joined to the, my fleshly body, which only is composed of sin. It's the root of sin in my life. And, 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 and I mean that quite literally, even though spiritually I am, I, I am also born a sinner because my father, um, Adam, sinned. But then in the course of my life, I meet this man, Jesus. And I've got this husband called the flesh. He's evil. He's mean. He abuses me. He does all kinds of things to me. Life is not, not nice because of my flesh. But I've met this new guy, and I go to this new guy who is loving and caring and, and willing to sacrifice and willing to do whatever I need. And I say, look, I got a plan. You or me, I don't care which, let's kill him. And once he's dead, then I'm free to marry, and you and I can get married. And Jesus says, no, can't do that. That's murder. But what we can do is you can die. And then that marriage relationship to your flesh is broken because marriage is for here. Death separates us, breaks the marriage vow. And then I won't leave you dead. I will resurrect you. And in your resurrected new life, you and I will be wed, but your, your flesh will still be there. You're still going to have to deal with it. And what happens? I've seen this a thousand times. Somebody gets divorced. What does the, the other spouse do? They get a gym membership. They go on a diet. They start exercising. They lose weight. They start showering. They start shaving. I'm, I'm putting the man in that. And suddenly, hello, and you open the door, and there they are, all slim, trim, tanned, groomed, smelling good with a box of chocolates and a bouquet of flowers saying, we used to have some good times. You want to go party? And that's exactly what your flesh does. That's why Paul says in verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, this sin-soaked world, your old lifestyle. You need to, um, sorry, I lost my place. 
You, but you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to change the way you think. You need to change the way, because if you change the way you think, you will change the way you act. And it's your actions that count. Now, well, let me keep that in mind. Okay? Because I'm about to sum up and I haven't even laid the groundwork yet. Let's go back to Exodus chapter... Well, we're going to focus on Exodus chapter 3, but let's go to Exodus chapter 2. And I'm, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but let me just go through the story. And you all know the story. Um, at, at, and during Exodus chapter 2, Pharaoh has seen the, the nation of Israel growing, and they're getting powerful, they're getting numerous. So he goes and he says, look, when Hebrew women... Um, give birth. I want the midwives, if, it's a, if it is a male child, I want you to drown that child. Kill it. Only females are allowed to live. Kill the men. And it's one of the few places in Exodus, very, one of the very few places, where you have a, Gentile, a group of Gentile women that are named and praised. We don't know if they were saved. We don't know if God accepted them, but he named them, called them out by name and praised them because they were the midwives that refused to do that. And they took their life in their hands when they did that. And one of the children that they did that for, they defied Pharaoh, was Moses. And Moses' mom and dad took him. Now remember, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. And they worshipped things that came out of the Nile. So Moses, they, they took Moses, built an ark, put pitch on it so it would float, put Moses in it, sent him down the Nile, just happened to be, it was by plan, that Pharaoh's daughter would bathe right near there. The current carried this baby down, one of the, the ladies that was in waiting that was there with Pharaoh's daughter heard the baby crying, brought this baby out of the Nile and brought it to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses. But notice Exodus 2, verse 6, the very last portion of that, because unfortunately for us, some of us get most of our theology from the movies. And you watch Cecil B. DeMille's production of, of, um, of Exodus and the story, and they will tell you, Moses was being groomed to be Pharaoh. That's why they cast um, Charlton Heston. Makes a great leader. We have no idea. Moses may have been a squirt. It doesn't matter what your physical presence is. When God calls you and God anoints you, He'll place you in leadership and it'll work. But they always pre present that no one knew that Moses was a Jew. And it came as a big surprise for Moses. I'm a Jew? How am I a Jew? I thought I was an Egyptian. Exodus 2, verse 6, the last part of it says, when the girl brought the baby to Pharaoh's daughter, said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. How did she know that? Because they circumcised the boys at eight days old. That predated the tabernacle. That started with Abraham, and they, they, that was a custom of the Jews before it was inscribed in the law. So Moses, they didn't have diapers. Moses was in this little ark naked, and he's a boy, and they recognized he's a Jewish child because only Jewish boys are circumcised. If it had been an Egyptian boy, he would not have been circumcised. So Moses grew up and the court grew up knowing that Moses was a Jew. Well, why would they allow that? Because they were still grooming Moses to rule. He would have never been Pharaoh because Pharaoh had to come out of the lineage of other Pharaohs because he was considered a god. In fact, they had to keep their blood so pure that they only married sisters and first cousins. And if you look at some of the... Um, CAT scans, when they went and examined the mummy of Tutankhamun, that boy was a mess. They were so inbred, he was club-footed. He could barely walk, if he could walk at all. 
He would never, he was, you know, the indications are he has a fractured skull. And, and the story they suppose is that someone probably killed him, but he would not have lived to be a very old man because he was messed up because he was inbred. Why? Because they were gods, and a god didn't marry a commoner. A god only married someone that was in the lineage of the gods. So they inbred and inbred and inbred and inbred, and they were messed up. But, ex but Moses was being groomed to be a ruler, but he was being groomed to be a ruler over the Jews and keep the Jews in subjection as slaves. The Nazis did the very same thing. Nazis didn't go in and rule. When you look at the Warsaw Ghetto, the Nazis never went into the ghetto. They had Jews that they appointed as police officers. And they went in and ruled, cruelly in some cases, thinking that they would not be killed. What they didn't know is they were just the last to be loaded in the boxcars and shipped off to Auschwitz to be killed. They just went last. That's what... Pharaoh was grooming Moses for, to be a ruler over the Jews, but to keep them in subjection. But he was raised as an Egyptian. All right? He knew he was a Jew, but he dressed like an Egyptian. He would have looked like an, an Egyptian. So that when you, you get to um, chapter, um, excuse me, in chapter 2, you get to verse 11. This is where Moses, and I, I'm convinced, and this is just my own personal theology, I am convinced that Moses already knew there was a call. I think he already sensed that God was saying to him, you need to, to free your people. He did, I don't think he had it really settled and knew everything that he was called to do, but you, you have an inkling that there's a call before God gets specific about your call. So in verse 11 of, of Exodus 2, it says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the ground. Moses just decided, I'm delivering this one. May not be able to save them all, but I'm saving this one. But notice before he did it, he looked around. Nobody can see me. And then he murdered a man. And he hit him. And then verse 13, And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, <coughs> Why are you striking your companion? And then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses was in fear of his life because he had betrayed the call that Pharaoh had put on him to rule over the Jews, but to not rule over the Egyptians. He had, he had betrayed Pharaoh and killed one of the Egyptians, and Pharaoh very clearly says right here, I will seek to kill Moses. You watch the movies, no, we're just going to exile you because I love you. Let me tell you, when, you when, when the world thinks you're on their side and you suddenly confess I'm not on your side, in fact, I'm not an ally of yours, I'm, I'm an enemy of yours, they will, come after, they will hate you worse than they hate one of their own that just screwed up. Because you, you have betrayed them. And, and betrayal is one of the worst things in human, uh, this human thinking. And when you betray someone, they, they come at you viciously. I, I had a situation, and, and please hear my heart, I'm not criticizing all unions, but the one I was involved in when I was a teacher, we were corrupt. I was corrupt. And, and I was a state officer in, in the, t the teacher's union. I won't name it, but pretty obvious which one it is where we live. But I was a state officer, and I was being groomed to be even a higher state officer. But I came in, and I know how I worked. 
I was the, in our local union, I was the enforcer. I was an angry man. This was right after my uh, children had died. And I was angry to my core. And we were trying to institute a union shop where if you didn't join the union, you couldn't teach in our school district. It was illegal, but we were going to do it anyway. In fact, we did get it done. And I killed it, which made me a really likable guy in my, class, in my um, teacher, other teacher's eyes. But I came into the school year, and if you didn't, uh, the, the entire year before this happened, I, um, we had one guy that wouldn't join the union, and I made his life miserable. I pinned him up against the locker more than once, put my finger under him. I never threatened violence on him, but I would, I'd call him everything, every nasty name you could call him. And I, I just, I was hard on him because I was going to force him to join the union. Well, I got back in fellowship with God during this time, and suddenly I didn't like what I saw in me. And I came in the first day of school, I had, had my, my state um, job, my state officer job had ended, but I was going to be president of our local union. And I walked in the first day and, and grabbed the leadership and said, I'm sorry, but I can't be the union president this year. In fact, I will not join the union this year, period, or ever again. I'm out of it. God told me to get out, and I'm out, and I won't. I got sued over it. Oh, I got my room trashed so many times. They hated my guts. Not everybody. It, it became a lightning rod in that school because I had people that defended me because they knew me. But the ones that were union guys, oh, they, made life, they did well to make my life miserable. That's exactly what Moses is going through. They hated him with an abiding hate because he was one of them. He was in the leadership, and suddenly he's killed an Egyptian. And Pharaoh wanted him dead, and Moses ran off, and he goes to Midian. Now, I think he, he, he wasn't recognized. The, 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 the Jews didn't say, oh, this is the guy that saved one of ours yesterday. Let's just submit to him. No, they're looking at him and saying, this is an Egyptian. What are you, you know, who are you? You murdered a guy yesterday. You may murder us today. I'm not hanging around with you. I'm not submitting to you. And he realized that the wrath of Pharaoh was going to come. But that brings us to Exodus chapter 3, which is 40 years later. Now remember, Moses had been raised when, when he killed the Egyptian. He was around 40 years old. He had been raised his entire life. Well, the first, till he was weaned, he was raised... With his mother, you know, they were smart enough. When when Pharaoh's daughter found him, uh, Miriam, his sister, told the daughter, "Oh, would you like me to go find a nurse for you?" And she went and got her mom. So her mom, Moses's real mother, nursed him until he was weaned. But then he went into Pharaoh's household and was raised just like they would raise any Egyptian, and he was raised to be a ruler. After 40 years, he had to run away. He lost everything. Zero. He w walked off, ran for his life, ended up in Midian, and he becomes a shepherd. Now in, in Exodus 3, let's, let's go back and look at verse 1. It says, Now Moses was sending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Mount Horeb is also known later on as Mount Sinai. This is where God's going to give Moses the Ten Commandments, give him the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. God is going to commune with, with, with uh, Moses to the point that when Moses comes down off the mountain, his face is going to shine with the glory of God. And the people are going to say, you need to put a mask over your face because that is a little frightening. And we don't think we can handle it, so please cover up. And it says in verse 2, when he's up there, he's on the backside of the desert. He spent 40 years, he went from the palace of Pharaoh to being a shepherd for a priest of Midian, and he's on the backside of the desert with a bunch of stinking sheep. 
And, you know, when God calls us his sheep, he, he, he really is not. We all picture this perfect little lamb. And what God pictures is dirty, stinking wool. And if you've ever been around sheep, they are the dumbest, smelliest animals in the world. You know, when, when, if had I been, been raised in, in the West a hundred years ago and the cattle sheep wars would have been broke out, I'd have been on the cattleman's side because they are not pleasant creatures to be around. So when God calls us his sheep, he's, it's not a compliment. What he is saying is you're stupid and you stink. And it's a pretty accurate description. I hate to burst your bubble. Now he loves us. But we still are stupid and stink. Now verse 2, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. This is the, the burning bush that isn't consumed. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush doesn't burn. Moses is just curious. How is this bush on fire, and yet it's not, it's not being consumed? I'm going to go check this out. And he, he walks up to it. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God, God called to him from the midst of the bush. Notice he called him by name. This was an appointment that God had with Moses. And he said, here I am. He called Moses, Moses. Verse 5, then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Moses knew, man, I just came over here to, to figure out what was going on, and I am in over my head. And he hid his face. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and some said the Mosquitoites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come to me. I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, Moses is sitting here. You've got to understand, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's home. This is probably the next Pharaoh in line because it's 40 years later. He fled for his life. He knows the power of Egypt. And he has spent the last 40 years getting all of the conceit that would have been put in him that, man, Moses, you are something else. You are going to be the head of the Hebrews. But you're going to rule from the power of Egypt. And he's out here doing nothing with a bunch of stinking sheep, just walking them around the desert. He has gone from the palace to the pit. And God shows up and says, Moses... You, the, you, my man, you're it, tag, go get him out of captivity. And Moses, from his, his um, reply, his reply is, I'm nothing. <laughs> I can't do that. Who do you think I am? In fact, he says that, verse 11. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, Listen to this. Moses just asked a question. Remember last week I was talking about courage, and I said when, when um, uh, Caleb addressed the children of Israel, he addressed them in the wrong, about the wrong question. They came and said, we can't go take the land. And Pharaoh, or, or Pharaoh, Caleb said, we are well able. What Caleb should have said is our God is well able to make us able to take the land. Instead, he argued natural strength to natural strength, and he lost the argument. Had he gone back and said, look, guys, you're looking at our strength. I'm looking at God's strength. And I'm confident in my God that he can make us do this. 
Moses is doing, he's on the side of the ten spies. He said, who am I? I'm not capable of doing this. And he asked God a very specific question. Who am I that I can do what you just told me I need to do? And this is God's answer. And basically, God didn't answer his question. But he, meaning God, said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God never answers his question. He never says, well, let me tell you who you are, Moses. You're my servant. I've empowered you. I'm raising you up to be this great leader. God says none of that. He said, Moses, I'll be with you. And here's, what, here's where the sign that you'll know that it's me. When it's all done, when it's all said and done, when everything is accomplished that I'm going to accomplish, then you're going to come here and you're going to worship me on this mountain. You and the people. That's the whole point. God said it isn't about you, Moses. It's about me being with you and I'm going to bring them out so I can teach you how to worship me. The whole point of what God's saying, it's all about worship. Now, let me close with this. And I am going to close. And I'll, I'm, this, this thing is so wide and so deep, this, it may, we may be on this till Christmas. But Moses asked the question, God said, it's not about you, Moses. It's about me. And the whole purpose of this is you are going to come serve. It's the Hebrew word abai or avad. And it means to do Levitical service. He's going to bring Moses out. Now this is, is the question. On down through there, and, and we're not going to get there today, but, but he asked, Moses asked God, he says, well, who, they're going to ask me, who's this God that sends you? You just told me you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But who am I going to tell him? He said, you tell him I am, that I am sent you. And he summed up his nature. I am all sufficient. I don't need anything. I don't need anyone. I am it. I am the sum total of everything. I am all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everything. So here's my question. If God is so complete, why does He need worshipers? He doesn't. Worship is not about us supplying a need that God has. Worship is about God getting us to a place and getting us in an activity where He can supply what we need. Worship doesn't affect God. Worship changes us. That's why God calls us to worship. It's not about Him. Now, He is the object of our worship, yes. But the reason he wants us to worship is it changes who we are. It, it, it puts into effect what Paul said we need to do. We need to quit being conformed to who we used to be and start transforming our mind into who God's made us to be. And, and the proof of that is, if you look at Genesis, the first two chapters, when you look at how God created Adam and Eve... You will not find an instance in the garden where Adam and Eve ever worshipped God. They had no need to worship God. God simply would come in the evening and walk with Him. Why? Because they had no need. They were perfect and they were complete. And they had no need to worship Him. The, the, the first instance of, of worship doesn't show up until much later. Um, I had it written down and now I've lost my note. Genesis, I think, Genesis 20, 22 is where the, the English word worship first shows up. And it's used in the context of when Abraham went up to the altar to, to offer Isaac. If you look at that Hebrew word and back it up where that Hebrew word first appears, it's in um, Genesis 18, 2, where there, and it's connected with the service in the tabernacle. 
When Moses brings these children of Israel out of the wilderness, it takes, and depending on who, who counts and how they count, it took anywhere from 30 to 90 days for them to get to Mount Sinai. But they spent anywhere from a year to two years at Mount Sinai. Now, most people, when you talk about Moses going up on Mount Sinai, the first thing they say, well, what, what was the point of that? Well, the point was to get to law. Well, that was, a, that was a part of it, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing the law to the, to the Jews. God gave them the law. But remember, God had dealt with children of Israel for 400 years without the law. Abraham and all the descendants of Israel had been having a relationship with God without the law of Moses. Paul says, if you have no law, you will be a law unto yourself, and the law you are unto yourself will convict you. Because even the law that you come up on your own, which is usually one that's pretty easy to keep because it deals with your strengths, you won't even be able to keep that law. And, and the whole purpose of the law, Paul tells us this in the book of Romans, the whole purpose of the law was not to give us a guide to live our individual lives with. It is a great guide for a society as a whole. Wonderful guide how our civilization started here in America was based on the law of Moses. But individually, it's not a guide to, be, to live by. It's a guide to tell us we can't live this perfectly and we have to have a Savior. That's why God gave him the law. But what did he spend most of the time doing? He gave Moses the plan to build the tabernacle and he spent most of that year to a two years of showing them how to worship and structure their lives according to the worship pattern in the tabernacle. And I'll, I'll go through it very briefly and, and then we'll be done and we'll pick this up more later on. The very first thing, if you look at the tabernacle, it's a, recta or a, yes, a rectangle. And it, the fence, you cannot get through the fence anywhere except the curtain in the front. Jesus, in talking about this in John chapter 10, said, when, and he used the, 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 the example of the, the corral that shepherds would use, and they would plant this hedge that predators couldn't get in and the sheep couldn't get out, but they would leave a gap in one corner. And the shepherd himself, where they would bring all of their, their flocks in, they would put them in the corral, and the shepherd would lay down and become the door. And Jesus in, in John 10 says, I am that door. And no one comes into the sheep lest they come through me. Anyone that comes over the hedge, he's a thief and a liar. And then you get to John 10, 10, where he says, there is a thief, there is a liar, his name is Satan, and he comes for one reason, to steal, kill, and destroy. But I am the good shepherd, I am the door. So you only come into the tabernacle through the door, which is Jesus. Now, Moses didn't know his name would be Jesus. He just knows there's a Messiah to come, and that Messiah to come is going to be the entrance to get into the presence of God because that is the ultimate aim of the tabernacle. Get into the presence of God. But, there's only, but you have to do it step by step by step. The very first step is you have to sacrifice and spill blood. For the Jews, it was animals. For us, it's the blood of Jesus on the, the altar in heaven, crying out 24 hours a day, mercy to anyone that will come and take it. And that, is, that has to be, that's the first thing we have to renew our minds to, is we have to always tell ourselves, it's not about me, it's not who I am, it's Jesus' blood that has cleansed me, redeemed me, remade me, and I am who I am because of who Jesus is in me. It's not who I am, it's who goes with me. And in our case, it's not just Jesus going with us, He's in me. He's changed me to be just like Him. And He's empowered me to live the life. But He empowers me by next step, and this is the, this is the one that, that really gets hard to understand sometimes, because I'm cleansed by the blood, but the very next one is the brazen uh, laver. It's brass, which represents sin, and it's full of water, and I have to wash myself, even after I'm born again. Why? Because I have to wash out 
the old and bring in the new. I have to change the way I think. I have to constantly be renewing myself by reminding myself who I am in Christ, what that blood has done to me. And when I do that, I can enter into the holy place where you have the lampstand, which is the light of the word. You have the holy bread, which is the word of God. And you have the altar of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And I get illuminated by the light. I consume the bread and it transforms me and it causes me to pray. And when I do, for us in particular, they had a big veil between them and the presence of God. There's no such veil. Jesus, God, ripped the veil from top to bottom. And it says it went from top to bottom because it was not a man who tore that, that, that veil open. It was God himself that tore that veil open because now we can come into the very presence of God. Hebrews says it, come boldly into the throne of God to find grace and help in time of need. And I've said it before, if you've got a pulse, you are in need. And you need to come in there. We don't come in nonchalantly. We don't come in and say, yeah, you know, me and the big guy up there, we're, we're tight. If you say that, you don't have any idea who you're talking about. He's not some big guy in heaven. He's the Lord God Almighty. But he's my loving father and I come boldly before his throne because he has invited me in. I'm one of his family. I don't go in cowering. I'm just a sinner and a worm. He has one thing to tell you when you do that. Get up. Stand up straight. You're a child of God. You don't need to be down on your knees. Yes, you will get on your knees to worship him. But when you come before him, you come with, with a knowing that you are welcome he doesn't, you don't come in there to get judged by your sins. Your sins were judged outside of his presence at that altar where the blood is. And you've cleansed yourself and you've consumed his word, been illuminated by his words. You pray and you get into his presence and then the glory will get on you. And the glory will transform you. It will change you. It will make you into a new man. When the, 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 the world saw the disciples, they looked at them and said, we don't understand this. We can listen to them. They're Galileans. You know what that, the, today's epitaph would be? They're a bunch of hillbillies. They talk like that. That's how they talk. And everybody looks at you and they say, well, you couldn't have much sense because you just talk weird. No. I may talk like a hillbilly, but I'm a child of God. I'm anointed by God. I, have, I can stand in the very presence of God, but my life is different. I'm not the same man that I was before I came through that curtain. When I came into Jesus, he changed me. This is the problem with the modern theology that the... the, the I've got to be careful how I say this because I, when I think about this, I want to cuss. And the old man rises up and I don't want to do that. But the, the worldly church will tell you, well, you know, two men living together as husband and wife is fine because they love each other. <laughs> they love each other, yes. It's called, called passion. There's a Greek word that, 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 that um, describes that. It's eros. If you want to get into the love of God, you're going to have to get into agape. And agape love will change how you are. You want to know what the natural uh, tendency for, mo for, not most men, every man that's ever been born. The, the natural tendency of every man that's ever been born is to sleep with as many women as he can. And by sleep with, I mean to have sex with. That is your natural inclination. And I'll tell you what, every woman that I've ever talked to that has that attitude, they're liberal Christians, if they're Christians at all, but I, I don't get upset with worldly people. I understand how worldly people thought, think that way. If you're not born again, that, should, that is your, your, your um, uh, attitude. Because you don't know any better. You're a pig. You think like pigs think. But if you call yourself a sheep, you call yourself a, a Christian and you have that attitude, then I'm sorry, you haven't been transformed.
You cannot look at that. You cannot say the aim of life is to display my natural inclination because every one of the women that I've ever had sort of this conversation with, never once have I, and I've put the question to a few of them. So you're saying that it's okay for two women to love each other and be married or two men to be, love each other and be married, but your husband's natural inclination is to have sex with as many women as he can. Should he be allowed to follow that natural inclination and have affairs while he's married to you? And I'm telling you what, you can see the fire start in their eyeballs. And their answer very clearly is no, that's a natural inclination that he cannot follow. He will be transformed, if not by the word of God, then by my big right hand. Why is it that way? Because they know it's wrong. But they have been so brainwashed by the current political and social uh, mores that they think it's okay to, exp to express um, eros instead of agape. And God says, no, I want your life transformed. Now, here's where we need to be careful. And i got to quit because I'm already past time. We need to be careful that we don't take the attitude, yeah, we're not like that bunch of stinking worldly Christians, if they are Christians. No, we need to walk in love towards all of them. Because they all need salvation. If they truly are born again, if they've come through that curtain and they've, they've applied the blood of Jesus, they're just stuck between the blood and the laver. They haven't cleaned their mind up. They haven't changed the way they think. That does not mean they're not possibly in the body of Christ. And we cannot cut them off. And we cannot say, you're not a Christian if you think that way. You can be a Christian and think that way. Well, how can you say that? Because there was a time when I was a Christian and I thought that way. Because I never bothered to get in the book and renew my mind. I was a Christian when I was part of the union and I was the union enforcer. And I was a bully, and I was brutal, and I was hard. I was mean. You didn't want to know me back then. I mean, I'd get in your face. If you, if you crossed me, I'd slit your tires. I'd, I'd put sugar in your gas tank. I'd kill your, your cows. I'm, I was, I am, I'm not proud of it, but I was that mean. I'd get you back. You cut me, I'll cut you nine times, and you won't even know it's me. And I was a Christian, but I was so bitter and so angry and so stupid and ignorant of what the Word said that I didn't know any better. I just hoped and prayed I'd make it to heaven. What transformed me was finally getting right with God and getting into the Word. I remember trying to train myself to go out and preach to others. I finally figured out that I could know I was born again. That transformed my life. When I read in 1 John that you can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you will make it to heaven. It took fear out of my life. It transformed me. And then the more I washed at that labor, the more I consumed the bread, the more I got illumination, the more I prayed, the more the glory just got out. And it transformed me to the person I am now. Am I perfect? Far from it. Ask my wife. She will tell you I am not a perfect human being. Don't claim to be. But I'm, I've at least left the station. Amen? But it's all of what I need to do is an act of worship. We think it's singing and coming together. That can be an act of worship. But just every day temple service, getting up, saying the blood of Jesus is on me today, recognizing that what I'm thinking is the old way of thinking, and I'm going to wash that out of my mind, I'm going to consume the Word, I'm going to get illuminated by the Word, and I'm going to get into the presence of God. I'm going to come boldly before His throne and let Him transform me. Those are all acts of worship. They seem very logical, unemotional, very routine. Because let's face it, there are days when you get up and the last thing you want to do is read that same verse again. But there are some verses 
They mean, they they trans, John 10, 10, I've quoted it so many times. The reason I quote it so much is it changed my life when I got a revelation of that. And I realized God wasn't my problem, the devil was. And I know a lot of Christians don't know that. The, the, the other one was, was Acts 20, 32, where Paul, when, when he left the, the church at Ephesus, he thought he was going to die. And it was his last words to these elders, and he said, I commend you to the Word of God, which is able to save your souls and give you an inheritance. It's the Word that will cleanse you. It's the Word that will help you, to empower you to walk in His fullness. And it's only through worship that we get a hold of it. Getting a hold of it is an act of worship. Amen? I, my encouragement to all of us, you got saved by hearing about Jesus through the Word. Somebody either quoted a Bible scripture to you or just told you about what Jesus did in, in their life. You get saved by the Word. You get transformed by the Word. It's the Word that will grow you up. It's the Word that will plant the seed in your heart to change you. It's the Word that will water that same seed to make that Word grow. It's the Word that will, will bring the light of the Gospel on that Word that's been planted and watered that will bear fruit in your life. Because I'll be honest with you, most people, they don't care about the power of God you walk in. They care about the fruit of the, of the Word that comes out of your life. We're not called to be the power of God. We're called to be fruit, a fruit of the Spirit, to display it. Amen? And my prayer is that, that we will start with that. There's got to be something in this whole message today that stood out to you. Wow, that, 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 that one thing right there, that, I needed that. That's what God wants you to meditate on the rest of the week. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.